0: Listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is City of Chattanooga Mayor Tim Kelly. Mayor Kelly is a native of Chattanoogan. He graduated from the Baylor School in 1985, went to Columbia University in New York, and received his MBA from Emory. Mayor Kelly's real-world education came in Chattanooga helping run the family car dealerships and then venturing into entrepreneurial efforts involving motorcycles, soccer, and beer. <laughs> Mayor Kelly, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we talk about your varied interest, not the least of which is a degree in German comparative literature, let me ask, what's in your morning cup?
1: Uh, well, hopefully coffee. Uh, <laughs> generally speaking, uh, I get up and make coffee every morning. It's my it's my routine, so... Uh,
0: what do you prefer?
1: You know, I'm not real picky. It's kind of a point of tension. Right now, we're in the process. My wife and I are trying to find a happy medium because she likes like that sort of French roast, Starbucks kind of burnt tasting. To me, it's awful. I hate that. I like sweeter kind of Guatemalan, just something more like a normal breakfast, you know, yeah. Dunkin' Donuts, Waffle House coffee, you know. So we're trying to find a happy medium. I think we've gotten pretty close.
0: You put anything in it?
1: Maybe just a little bit of cream. That's it. I joke around that having spent, gosh, almost thirty years at a car dealership, I'm used to drinking really bad <laughs> coffee. You know, I mean, the stuff that you could like stick a stick in and have it. I mean, you know, it would sit on the old bun boiler for yeah. all day. And uh, and around car dealerships, it's about like you saw in sitcoms. People just sip a cup of coffee all day long, and uh, it's not good. Okay. But you get you get used to it.
0: Bet you miss that to a degree, too, don't you?
1: I do. Yeah, I miss the people. I mean, the car business was so full of characters, really distinct. I definitely could uh, write a sitcom about those years. I'm surprised nobody has.
0: Well, let's talk about those formative years. You grew up in Chattanooga, Mm -hmm. and you grew up in a family that obviously had car dealerships and fairly prominent family in town. Mm -hmm. Uh, but. You started out not in the car dealership. Your first job was at the Vine Street Market.
1: Sure was, yeah. Yeah, my dad, you know, it's funny how I feel like a lot of times during the campaign, people thought that we were some old money family from Chattanooga, and really nothing could be further from the truth. My grandfather uh, grew up on a watermelon farm up on the back of Sand Mountain, and uh got sideways with his family and left and put himself through he actually was a border to get through high school in collinsville alabama then went to birmingham southern and wound up going to work for general motors dad's side of the family is all from south georgia from bainbridge georgia but the long and short of it is they all had a very blue collar work ethic and so when i hit 15 my dad was like you need to get a job and i'm not giving you one and and, uh (laughs) So I remember going through the liner ads in the old Times Street Press and finding an ad for a dishwasher down at the original Vine Street Market on Vine Street. And I went down and applied and they hired me and that was it. I really liked that job, I got to say. And, you know, my wife, uh, as it turns out, that was one of the many points of conversation and kind of resonance that we had when we met because she worked her way through college in a restaurant. But I liked the, you know, busting tables and washing it's, dishes. It was just the kind of meditative, you know, clean dish, dirty dish, clean dish. You know.
0: I understand that. I started in yep. the restaurant business and went up through the kitchen so learned how to cook. But even today, I will cook at home, but I'll also clean up because of what you just said, the mm-hmm. meditative of the get the dishes, get them clean. Yeah, something strange about that. It it's is relaxing. something strange.
1: Yeah, I didn't realize it really at the time. And of course, that was a cast of characters. Leslie Jordan, you know, famously yeah. was a waiter there, and uh, that's a whole other story. How we formed a little vaudeville show to raise money to send him to Hollywood. That was uh, it was an interesting episode. Oh, that's
0: a great story. So you started Vine Street Market. But you eventually end up in the car dealerships.
1: Yeah, no, eventually. And once my dad saw that I was capable of solid work, I came to work the following summer. This was summertime jobs while I was in school, and the following summer went to work. Really, more or less pushing a broom. You know, as yeah. an assistant in the service department. You know, wound up working really in every department in the dealership over the summers, mm-hmm. even when I was in college. And then after college, you know, came back to work at the dealerships, which was sort of against my better judgment at the time. But, you know, it was a family business and I was it. My parents were only children, so...
0: Similar path for me. I grew up in a family business, which was a materials handling dealership, selling forklifts. All right. Pushing the broom, wiping off part shelves, and then deciding to come back and work in the family business. Me, more notably, didn't stick.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, it it. doesn't for everybody, right? And Uh, uh, it almost didn't for me. My dad and I, in the early years, we butted heads a lot. He was an old army guy and had a very rigid view of the world, you know, generationally speaking, and I did not. But it worked out in the end.
0: And that's a tough thing about a family business, because there is differences of opinion that you can have a difference of opinion with your boss. But when your boss is your dad or or a sibling, it cuts a little deeper, a lot deeper.
1: And, you know, you have to have or develop a fair degree of emotional maturity to disentangle those things, you Mm -hmm. know, and see them as two different things. Or otherwise, you know, Thanksgivings get really
0: tough I think that was my problem in the family business. Yep. I could not separate those. Yeah. And, and fortunately, I'm one of seven. So I had plenty of siblings who could fill that role. And I yeah. was able to go out and do my own
1: thing. Yeah, well, that's good. And I did. And then I'm glad. Look, I'm really glad I came back to Chattanooga. I love Chattanooga. It took me years to realize I really came back from New York for Chattanooga more yeah. so than the car business. Right. In a yeah. sense of kind of filial piety because I knew my parents really wanted me back here and they really wanted to see the business continue. But it's not easy. Every family business needs group therapy. There's no question about it.
0: And you came back at a critical time because running the businesses and I want to get to uh, the Great Recession and how you got through that and and, and all that. But one of the things in terms of talking about a family business in a recent article, you talked about your family culture was about being right. And being smart was everything, Mm -hmm. that everything was like a math problem.
1: Yeah, it was uh, it was tough. I mean, you can't ask a fish about water, as they say. And as a kid, I didn't know anything different. But my mother was a Phi Beta Kappa at Vanderbilt, which was unusual at the time for having gone to school in the early '60s. Very, very smart woman. My dad, um, pretty smart in his own right, had gone to Georgia Tech, was a mechanical engineer, and I'd
0: say that's very smart. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: I mean, and the, and you know, the family dinner table was where there was a lot of debates, a lot of conversation, a big premium placed on. Um, Education and intelligence. Mm -hmm. And that's the game we all played. And it wasn't until years later that I I realized that not everything is a math problem. Right. I mean, the concept, uh, I think we can all probably thank Oprah Winfrey for it, but like just popularizing the notion of emotional intelligence as opposed to just looking at everything like a math problem is really, really important. That got me sideways somewhat in early or rather late adolescence. And it took me going to counseling and therapy to really disentangle that and understand like that's not really the way the world is designed. And so I talk a lot as mayor about trying to destigmatize mental health. And my own journey involved a fair amount of struggle in that regard. But it all works, right? I mean, if you go get help and kind of understand your family culture and get outside yourself a little bit, there's always light at the end of the tunnel.
0: And that stigma of getting help, talking yeah. to a counselor, has really changed over the years.
1: Yes, it has. Thank goodness. And, right.
0: And frankly, it's one of the things I needed to do after I left the television business because yeah. I, I had a loss of identity. For all these years, I had this title and all of a sudden you don't have it. And being able to talk through those issues is critical it's to moving forward. It's
1: hugely critical. And the old... I think Sigmund Freud's ideas largely have fallen out of favor, but the general idea, the old talking cure, certainly has endured and it
0: works. Yeah. How formative was it for you when you left Chattanooga and went to New York as a John Jay Scholar, went to Columbia, and not just the Columbia experience, but some of the extracurricular activities you got into, like playing drums?
1: Yeah. It was huge. You know, my sister, again, having come out of this very intellectual background, my sister uh, went to Harvard and She was always sort of the pure academic. And so really, as much as anything, I don't sound silly, but out of a sense of guilt, I applied to all those schools and then got this offer from Columbia and thought, wow, okay. So I went up and visited, met some other really cool guys that said, yeah, we ought to probably do this. And so we all sort of jumped in together and coming from Chattanooga, it was very, very different. Columbia is a small school. It's Mm -hmm. only about size undergrad of UTC, really, or at the time, UTC is not much bigger than that. But going to school in Manhattan is quite an experience and, and a kind of a crucible in a sense, right? High attrition rate. I think mm-hmm. still to this day, maybe the highest attrition rate of any Ivy League school, because you can be out 24-7, 365 if you don't have the self-discipline.
0: Oh, well, you're in a playground.
1: Yeah, you are. And, you know, um, I managed it fine. Again, my dad having that military background, discipline was not foreign to me. And yeah. so <laughs> managed to keep it between the ditches. But yes, I was always a drummer. And yeah. so... Uh, Didn't play my freshman year, but by the time I was a sophomore, I felt like I was on top of things. So you had a band? Oh, yeah. What's the name? Oh, gosh. Played in a couple of different ones. But the one we mainly played in was called Curving Dog. <laughs> the thing about it is, you know, drummers don't name bands. Drummers generally join bands. And so uh, I've probably played in seven different bands over the course of my life. I'm not proud of any of the names, right? It is what it is, as they say. But we played some really cool places. We did got you? to play a lot of fraternity parties and parties around Columbia, but also played downtown, played CBGB. Oh, you know, you? At the time, I didn't think anything of it. In yeah. retrospect, I'm like, wow, you know, a, probably a big a legendary deal. Legendary place. Played a place called Maxwell's, which at the time just closed, but in indie music circles was a big deal over in Hoboken.
0: Probably at that age, that was really when the New York punk scene was that it stopped Talking Heads and Blondie oh, and, yeah. and all those. It bands. was
1: a little after that, so this would have been 86, 7, 8, you know, yeah. so it was a little late. A little I mean, when I was a senior and graduated, it was when the Pixies' Doolittle came out, and I still think that's one of the best albums of all time. But it was a great time. There's no bad time to, yeah. to be there. It was super interesting.
0: So while you were there and experiencing these things, were your thoughts of, I'm going to go back to Chattanooga and work in the car dealership, or did you start thinking, Hell you know what, no. I'm going to... <laughs> no.
1: no, I did not. I mean, I didn't know. It was interesting. You know, I still, or did, when I had time to interview for Columbia, you know, kids coming through, and you know, there, there are plenty of kids, There's nothing wrong with it, right? But there are kids you interview in high school, and like, I want to be a dentist, you know, yeah. and Great. Okay. And so they're on this pre-med track, but I didn't. Right. I mean, I think the idea of a liberal arts education is to go learn how to think as much as kind of what to think. And so I did not, I was somewhat aimless and knew that if I got a good liberal arts education, it would be kind of a movable feast. I could do what I wanted with that. But no, until I got to my senior year and the wall started closing in a little bit, I hadn't thought a lot about what I was going to do. Well, I say that, I mean, I really thought, I mean, most of where I spent my time was in journalism. I wrote for the paper a couple of different mm-hmm. versions of the paper the Columbia Spectator and then uh, the Federalist paper, which was formed and run by none other than uh, current Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. And then I uh, was an intern at The Nation. So I was all over the place politically. But it occurred to me after having done those internships that A, it was kind of uh, disillusioning and B, didn't pay anything. And I've never been a big materialistic person, but it just was not compelling enough.
0: But you got to (laughs) live.
1: Well, you got to live. Right. Exactly. And at the same time, I had developed an affection for the people, if not the business in the car business working in the summers there. And I thought, you know, what the hell I'll go back and try it. And I've got this sheepskin if I need it, if I can, you know, bolt out of here. And, uh, you know, the rest is history.
0: What year did you start working full-time in the car business?
1: 89, July of 1989.
0: So you go What did you come in as?
1: Came in as a salesman. So as it turns out, a little bit of Chattanooga car business history. My grandfather, Jim Ayers, took over a dealership here after the Great Recession that was then Cadillac Oldsmobile LaSalle of Chattanooga. Of course, LaSalle went away. People Mm -hmm. don't even remember that car brand. I can't even tell you when it went away. And then when he died in 19, he died the year I was born, uh, a little later that year, it was... Cadillac Oldsmobile, heirs and General Motors, at that time, the domestic brands were so dominant that General Motors came in and said, you have too much market share with Cadillac and Oldsmobile. And they told my dad, you need to break them up and keep one, sell the other.
0: So they pulled a mob bill on you.
1: Yeah, themselves internally, right? Yeah. But uh, again, I don't think my dad was too bothered by it, but he picked Cadillac and sold Oldsmobile to none other than John Hicks who people remember that were in Chattanooga in the 80s, had this huge auto park, went out and started this giant empire, really the first guy who accumulated a ton of auto brands, including Subaru. And then in the late 80s, we had a little short, sharp recession, if you recall, and he went out of business and we picked Subaru up. And so that was, in fact, the summer before I came back to work, my dad was like, okay, this is happening. What do you think if we had to pick up one of these brands, which one do you think we should pick up? And I had some friends that had had Subarus and knew they were solid cars that really just hadn't been marketed very well. And so that's what we did. So my first job coming back to circle back around was really to get Subaru organized and set it up as a brand. And I was kind of like the import sales manager. At that time, it was kind of like Saab and Subaru. You know, Saab was always a low volume brand, still one of my favorite car brands ever. But so that's what I did.
0: So you come up through sales. At what point did you take over management of the dealership?
1: That would have been around 1999, about 10 years later. That was when I became the general manager. and My dad, you know, he still was sort of there on a daily basis until, gosh, probably mid-2000s. But uh, yeah, that in 99 or so.
0: So fast forward a bit, mid-2000s, we had the Great Recession and really a contraction, not just the car business, but of pulling dealerships. And it really affected a lot of people Changed the business model. Talk a little bit about how you got through that and some of the decisions you had to make.
1: It was very rough. Definitely the toughest patch in my business career. And somewhat like you really had a, a crisis of identity in that what happened was in 07, of course, General Motors folded. I mean, nobody saw this coming. Right. And the irony of it is to back up. General Motors had been asking me because, again, I had just kind of taken the reins and was really just kind of starting to hit my stride and in the business really felt like I had a grip on things. And so they had said, hey, come buy this dealership out on Highway 153 and consolidate. Their plan was Cadillac, Hummer and Saab in one showroom, Pontiac, Buick and GMC truck in the other. I think they'd already folded Oldsmobile at that point. And so, of course, I'm like, yeah, great. Do it. Bought the dealership and went about trying to acquire the brands. We already had Cadillac Saab and we left Subaru downtown. In any event, right, a little bit later, like six months later, the cockeye hits the fan. And to make matters worse, we get a letter from General Motors saying we're contracting, changing things around. And since they filed bankruptcy and they did, they were able to, which, again, we never saw coming, sort of negate all their old contracts. So they just said, forget about all that. You don't have Cadillac anymore. We lost Cadillac. We lost GMC. We lost uh, Hummer. Of course, that just went away completely. And they gave them to other dealerships.
0: Just arbitrary decision on their part.
1: Totally arbitrary. There was a guy named Steve Ratner who... um, I mean, to be fair, what did he know? I mean, the whole reason General Motors filed bankruptcy, it was a pack of absolute fools. And it wasn't a secret. Wall Street had been criticizing them very heavily for quite some time. But in any event, they drove the bus over the cliff and shouldn't have surprised anybody. But in so doing... They go to this Ratner guy who was the Wall Street analyst who followed him and said, oh, you guys have got this Saturn brand. It's doing great because they just were mimicking Toyota's model. Well, there was nothing particularly special about Saturn. They had just, again, mimicked Toyota's model. But anyway, nothing against the Saturn guys. And of course, Integrity now has it because they had Saturn. They just gave them the brands, right? Because the idea is, well, they'll be much better off. Nobody's really done this. But if you go back and look at the market share, they weren't particularly great operators. But it is what it is in retrospect. It caused us to, I mean, man, I had to scramble to sell all the inventory that I had when the business was completely dead, try to find somebody to buy that building, which we did. And the Chevy guys bought it. The guys that uh, wound up taking over Cadillac and the other brands and really make some pretty harsh decisions internally just to keep the business insolvency so that we didn't have to file bankruptcy ourselves. And it was tough. And at the time, my mother was sick. You know, she later died. But at the time, she had had an aneurysm and was laying in the hospital. And uh, man, all of that also just put a giant fault line through my first marriage, which eventually died. And so it was it was there were some dark years.
0: Yeah. What did you learn about yourself in going through that?
1: I think I learned that I don't have a glass jaw, that I don't fold easily. Right. Take I mean, punch. yeah. I managed to get through it. And again, thank God I had prior to that time had gotten in the habit of going to counseling, going to therapy and talking through stuff. And I was in a good place. I was centered. And had I not been, I I do wonder. It had been a spiral. Oh, yeah, definitely could have been. But found my center and kept it. And, you know, we built a really strong team there at the dealerships to kind of get through it. And they were kind of my family during all that. And, you know, we got through it together.
0: During these years, is this when you picked up the motorcycle dealership? That was a few years prior to that, wasn't? Mm-hmm. You started branching out in other businesses.
1: Yeah, I had. Gosh, probably oh one and two. I had done that, and those businesses did fine. Right, that was one thing to survive the recession. That was tough enough. But again, what we had was the rug snatched out from under us. And again, back to the identity crisis thing, my family name had been Kelly Old Timers, no, Kelly Cadillac, just kind of reflexively the two were inseparable. And it was bizarre suddenly having that. I never conceived of the fact that they could just take it away from us, but that's what happened. And again, it didn't just happen to us. I mean, Rogers up in Knoxville, gosh, they had been Cadillac dealers at that point since Cadillac was founded as a brand. I want to say like 125 years just absolutely awful not just wrong but dumb yeah. right they were good operators and uh anyway it was a traumatic period of time
0: i bet you mentioned your mother and your mother was very involved locally in the community she was
1: yeah
0: how did you take the lessons that she taught you about community involvement
1: they weren't uh, chapter and verse type of lessons it was just watching her do it you know i just thought that's how people were supposed to behave And, you know, in retrospect, again, in the benefit of having kind of talked through some of this with a trained professional, it was tough as a small child because I felt like a lot of times she wasn't paying much attention to me because she was always out helping other people and doing other things. I got over that eventually. (laughs) But that's what she was doing. You know, she was born probably 10 years too early, right? She would have been a great CEO or a politician or something in her own right. But in the world that she was born in, all that was available to her was basically the junior league. But by God, she leaned into that. She did a ton of stuff in the community, both with the girls club, the junior league, multiple nonprofits here, and then wound up getting into tennis, ran the Rotary Club tennis tournament here. In fact, I think she more or less started it. And then wound up getting a job as a women's assistant or the assistant for women. She was, in essence, the women's tennis coach at UTC and won two national championships at UTC. She was something else. But it was, again, in retrospect, it's why I sort of consider myself as much of a feminist as a man can be. She was no shrinking violet, right? When I look at myself and the way that I operate, it is probably more my mother's influence than my dad's.
0: Yeah. Just observing what she did in the community really put in that lack of better term servant's heart.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And my dad was
1: the same way, but not quite as much. My dad, you know, was very much an engineer. He was a Rotarian. And again, very much characterized by his military discipline and service, but didn't have the same level of, I mean, my mom arguably gave too much, right? I mean, later in life, uh, she was also a prodigious bridge player and like became a grandmaster after playing like two years or something. She was a very smart lady. And um, there was a homeless woman that was hanging around the parking lot of the Bridge Center, and she just brought her home. And I came in one day, I'm like, "Uh, who's your friend, you know? (laughs) So that's who she was. She gave till it hurt, for sure.
0: I'm sure that all had an influence of your decision to run for mayor, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But Mm -hmm. I want to talk about a couple of your other businesses, the more high-profile, sexy businesses, soccer and beer
1: yeah I've learned since then that sexy businesses are not good businesses, generally speaking. <laughs> There's a really good business school strategy lesson on that one, but it just basically has to do with the number of uh, competitors in a given space. You know what you want to do is being like the tool and die business where it's not as sexy. but that's how it worked out, right? The soccer thing was really a result of the fact that, well, I was approached by Sheldon Grizzle and Crew Brock who, And this all happened in the course of a couple of months. Who were like, yeah, we hear you like soccer. And I did. I always loved it. And they knew that I knew Frank Burke, who was at the time running Finley. And they thought, gosh, wouldn't it be great if we could play at Finley? And I was one of the few guys in that original founders group who had a strong business background. And so as it turns out, you know, I wound up doing all the sponsorship and a lot of the more business related activities there. But in the process of doing that, we always had a very local focus and Chattanooga Brewing was an in-kind sponsor. They would give the club, uh, I want to say it was around 70 kegs of beer for the year, and that was the sponsorship. Not cash, it was just the beer. And then we would sell the beer, keep the money. Hey, you know, so it worked out pretty great. But in that, having developed that relationship, became clear at some point the guys that founded the brewery in its modern iteration said, yeah, we we need some help. And so I became involved with China Brewing that way.
0: Are you surprised at how Chattanooga Football Club really established itself in this time? Because it yeah. really is a passion with the fans, the Chattanooga hooligans.
1: You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and in some ways, it's really surprising, and in some ways, it's not surprising at all. You know, reality is always version of the past made manifest, right? So. I mean, it is what it is, right? So the question is, why was it so surprising? Mm -hmm. And I think it was surprising because people didn't think of Chattanooga as a soccer town. Well, the answer really is that it's not about soccer. We saw this during the 2016 presidential cycle and even in other countries, like what happened in France with the gilets jaunes and... People have been struggling, I think, to find a sense of place and a sense of pride and a sense of identity. And what became really obvious to me about the Chattanooga FC thing is it was more about Chattanooga yeah. than it was about soccer. And in fact, the Chattahooligans who were the, you know, and still are, right, the really carry the mantle. I mean, it was a totally spontaneous thing. They sprang up kind of out of thin air. And if you talk to them, and many people have, because it was such a wild phenomenon on a national scale. I mean, they've been interviewed by a lot of soccer press Mm -hmm. from around the country and in fact around the world they would tell you that it really wasn't about soccer that it was about like having a strong sense of pride about chattanooga which a lot of people do this gets back to the mayoral thing but not having a way to galvanize it right not having a flag to rally around and that's what the club became
0: into your point of something to rally around that was a period of time when chattanooga was having a lot of success rebranding itself rebirthing itself and becoming what it is today. Mm-hmm. And organically, it seems like the whole formula was there for that to come kinda...
1: out. Now, I guess, you know, again, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I think that's exactly right. I mean, I got to say it did surprise us. I vividly remember the very first game thinking, if we do this right, and we had put a hell of a lot of time and effort into getting it right you know, it was a startup. Okay. I mean, that's an important thing to say. I mean, I've done a lot of startups and in some ways it was the most fun and the most interesting and the most successful startup I've ever done. But even still, what every startups looking for is product market fit. Right. And we were thinking if we could get 500 people to show up, that would be awesome. And we had 16, 1700 people show up in the rain. I'm like, okay, well, I think we're onto something here. And, you know, before long we were putting eight, 10,000 people into Finley and the rest is history.
0: And as it started, it was not a professional club, was it? No, was it? the
1: league was the NPSL, which still exists today. We've actually spent more of our history as an NPSL club than a professional club. And a really great model It really a summer league. So mainly, not all, but mainly college players who are playing somewhere in the summertime in what amounts to a semi-professional environment, right? They're not getting paid. I think it was permissible for us to give them housing and things of that nature. But the fans didn't care right? The fans did not care. Not that they didn't care about soccer. It's just that Chattanooga was primary. They fell in love with the sport as a result. And are many of them, if not all of them, are very much soccer fans today. Although a few notably are not. A few are literally there just for that community phenomenon. So we trucked along for a number of years as a three, four month a year league. Did very well. And then the momentum we were getting... We were getting quite a lot of people wanting us to become professional, to have a longer season. We knew that it would be financially risky to do that, but we went ahead and took the leap. And we did it at the time when we were able to offer public ownership. And it uh, turns out you'd have to hire an investment bank, do a public offering, and it would have been like a million dollars just in legal fees to do it. Completely impossible. And a few years later, we kind of went back to it again because, you know, we're not a franchise, right? American sports is full of these models that are owned by generally private equity or private investors. And if they don't get what they want, they move. And what we said, which is very, very different, we're not completely unique in this way, but it's still pretty unusual in the United States, although it is universal in the rest of the world. You don't have franchise sports moving around in the rest of the world, certainly not in Europe or Latin America. But we said it's in our name. We're never going to move. So why would we not sell Our shares to the public, if we could figure out a way to do it. And in the latter years of the Obama administration, the Jobs Act passed, really never got the fanfare that it deserves because the whole idea was to kind of democratize capital and push investment from Wall Street to Main Street so that people could invest in bakeries and breweries and it turns out soccer clubs, right? Made it a heck of a lot easier to do. So you have platforms like WeFunder, which is what we use, Republic. There are others that do this and they put companies up and you can go and sell, you know, equity crowdfunding, they call it. You can sell shares in your business to the general public through these platforms. And we were the first sports club to be able to do it. So we were proud to do it. We raised, uh, gosh, nearly a million bucks. And to this day, almost a third of the club is owned by the uh, general public and investors from all over the United States, every state, and 30 countries around the world.
0: And you have your owners sitting in the stands. Absolutely. We've had a number of people on this podcast, and we're focusing, obviously, locally on Chattanoogans. You've got a great love for Chattanooga, and one of the common comments from everyone who comes on is their love for this city and how it's either kept them here or drawn them back. Mm -hmm. Talk about that a bit and how that worked into your decision to run for city mayor.
1: You know, it's funny, I think about the conversation that you and I had when you came back to town and you said something that's always stuck with me, which is that there's more to life, which I still think would be a great slogan for (laughs) for Chattanooga to use. But there are a lot of really talented people in Chattanooga that could be anywhere else doing any number of things. But Chattanooga is special. It really is. Uh, the culture special. The place geographically is clearly very special. And after having spent all this time here, it occurred to me that, uh, well, I really didn't come to the mayor's office through the business community as much as I did through the nonprofit community. Like my mom and my dad, I spent a ton of time volunteering for nonprofits. And that stuff kind of is like being in the bleachers, looking at all the social problems that Chattanooga faces and trying to move things along. And I got to the point where, well, a couple of people came to me and said, hey, you know, you ever thought about running for mayor? And I thought, first time I heard it, I thought, you've lost your mind. But after thinking about it, uh, talking to Senator Corker, who always said, best job you ever had, including 12 years as a chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate. uh, I thought, you know what? I could probably do this. And I'm still amazed at this kind of weird meta self that you take on as America's people just look at you differently, treat you differently. And we're not different. You know, we put our pants on the same way. I mean, some people really lean into that and sort of get off on that. I don't. Right. I mean, I'm just the same old guy and don't want to be anything but that. In any event, that all led me to throw my hat in the ring. And then again, I treated it like any other startup because I do love this place. I've said it many times before. I don't have further political ambition. My people keep telling me, don't say that. You need to stop saying that because it is weird because you realize that there's this paramutual aspect of politics where people need to be a little bit afraid that you might run for something and put them in their place in order to keep them honest. And so, you know, maybe I will, but not really. This kind of brings it back full circle. I really just love this city. And I really believe, and I said this on the campaign trail, and it's still the truth. I mean, I still think this place has the raw material and the potential, both in terms of human capital and physical environment, to be the best city in the country. Bar none, not the best mid-sized city, the best city. And so, right, I mean, that's what I go to work every day doing, is push, 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 rolling that rock. And it's enjoyable and challenging, but I'm glad I did it.
0: Well, I'm glad you're here. I'm really pleased that you came on My Morning Cup. And I do have one last question. Think about this a second. What would you say to your 25-year-old self that's really important for a happy life? That's
1: a great great question.
0: Uh, Don't be afraid to ask for help. That's a big one. Yep. Because so many people don't ask for help because they're afraid that it's going to show that I don't know what I'm
1: doing. Well, you know, particularly white guys of our vintage, right? I mean, again, having come from a military background with my dad, it was this sort of, you know, um, very hardcore rub some dirt on it, uh, <laughs> mindset. Right. And, uh, yeah, that gets you in trouble fast. Right. I mean, yeah. learning to be vulnerable and realizing you don't know everything and then that's okay. And that it's okay to have bad days and you don't need to do it alone and uh, you know there's that old african proverb about you want to go somewhere far you got to go together right it's okay to ask for help and not only that but you're going to need help yeah. nobody can do it alone
0: isn't it interesting that a culture of ours that values teamwork There's this onus on the strong loner who does everything. Yeah.
1: You know, it's like I often say, I think a lot of the American public is still laboring under the impression that we're supposed to be living this episode of Gunsmoke, you know, (laughs) and Gunsmoke's entertaining, but it ain't reality, right? It's just not. And, you know, John Wayne, we idolize John Wayne and that sort of mythic figure and that old American independent tough. I mean, it's great. I mean, and it's great to be in that modality at times, but it's not normal or healthy to try to be that person all the time. And by the way, John Wayne certainly was not that person no, all the time, no. uh, if not even most of the time.
0: You've made some great points. It is about working together. It's about asking for help. And frankly, it's about admitting to your vulnerabilities and facing them.
1: That's exactly right.
0: It's been a fascinating conversation, Mayor Kelly.
1: Thank you, sir. Tim, Thank thanks, you. thanks for being here. Likewise.
0: Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.